I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Specifically, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 today. The sermon is entitled, Enjoy Life. Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hands of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to their dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all of this done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking from your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not won, The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word this morning. Now, as I was preparing my words yesterday for speaking, I I became very aware that I needed to be careful about how I spoke. I'm not one for holding back from truth. And in fact, I, I want us to understand the heresies of our day. I want us to understand what it means to think and live in a biblical way according to God's principles But I also recognize that it's very easy for earnest people to get deceived by false teachers. It's also very easy for earnest pastors to come across as pugnacious or simply condemning everything without really uh, coming to the principle of the Word of God. Now, every generation has a reality that they need to deal with and that there will be false teachers and false preachers. And one of the most insidious things that we have today in the Christian world is the doctrine of the prosperity gospel. The promise that if you're a Christian, 
You can claim the promises of wealth, prosperity, and health. Now, the airwaves and the internet are littered with people preaching this, aren't there? God helps those who help themselves. All we need to do is, is visualize our best life, plant seeds of faith, and then watch as the material blessings just start flowing. Their, their message is that health and wealth are the automatic divine rights of all Bible-believing Christians. All we need to do is to discover the power of our thoughts and words. If you think negative thoughts all day long as a believer, how can you ever expect God to bless you? But when you think positive, excellent thoughts, you will be propelled towards greatness, inevitably bound for increase, promotion, and God's supernatural blessings. That's a quote. Amazon is littered with their books. But I think we need to ask ourselves, if these are false preachers, why is it that the faith promise movement is the fastest growing segment of the Christian church in the world? It's true that faith and obedience bring a blessing of eternal life. And sometimes even a reality or an experience of physical and financial blessing. But here's the problem. It is a profound, unbiblical thing to say that a Christian will never experience heartache, evil, pain, or suffering. Or, or that if you're, you're experiencing these things, it is a, a problem of faith yourself, itself. So faith isn't ours to create the future we want. It's not to create a future that we think we deserve. It doesn't ignore the brokenness of this world and try to redefine it according to what we want. Faith, however, gives us the ability to look at the ugly truth and the reality of this broken and fallen world and then march confidently from this life on to the next. Now, this morning, as we're looking at chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes, verses 1 through 12, we're going to see that the theology of the prosperity gospel is actually just blown out of the water for us. I don't know how they can read these verses and, and understand anything else. Not only is there no promise of physical, material blessing here in this world, but from our present position here now, of life under the sun, there's no set of rules, nothing that we can do that can guarantee a better way of life for ourselves. Even as Christians... We look around and there's no guarantee, there's no 10 steps that will magically give us a better life. As far as we can tell here and now, the only thing that's certain is death. And even in death, we can't look at the life or the death of people who are godly and ungodly and look and say there's a difference between the two. It, it, the same thing happens to all. Yet, I want to encourage you that this message this morning is actually a very positive thing. It, it, it deals with the bleakness of the reality around us. And for anyone who has ever said that Ecclesiastes is, is such a bleak, morose book, ha, has never dealt with verses like we're going to today. So here's a proposition statement I want you to just think about. Everything that we're going to be learning this morning is wrapped up in this sentence. Even though everything in this fallen world is unpredictable, including our death, 
those who belong to God have great hope. So let us live all the days that God gives us to the fullest. Let me say that again. Even though everything in this fallen world is unpredictable, including our death, those who belong to God have great hope. So let us live all the days that God gives us to the fullest. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at the reality that, that we live in a paradoxical world, right? Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. Godly people seem to die young, and ungodly people seem to just be able to extend their life. Uh, the preacher's concern at that point was really a question of justice. If, if God exists, why, why would he allow such injustice? But here in verses 1 through 6, the preacher goes one step farther. The problem isn't a question of inequity or injustice. The problem is it just doesn't seem to matter how you live your life. The same events happen to all people, whether you're a Christian or not Christian. And we see that in two different arguments coming out. The first one is in verse 2. There's just no formula. There's no set of rules that will allow us to determine how life will go for us. And this is a great evil, he says, he sees under the sun. In the end, we all die. And the quality of our lives just doesn't seem to matter. Now, we love to live by sound bites today, don't we? <laughs> Digestible proverbs that will write up little stories for Ten things to make your marriage better. Seven things to make sure that your, your kids love church. And we'll grasp onto those, and those are promises. And we try to enact them and say, okay, if I only do these things, these are blessings that are ours. But there's nothing we can do. There's no list that we can follow that will guarantee the outcome that we want. The point of verse 2 is, is from our perspective here and now. It doesn't matter if you're good, if you're righteous or wicked, if you're clean or you're unclean, whether you're religious or whether you're atheist, the same events happen to everybody. Now, until recently, I think probably that great equalizer in life for all of us was cancer. You know, it, it affects, it comes upon rich or poor, wise or a fool, none of us want to hear that diagnosis, you have cancer. But I think COVID-19 has done that in a different way. It's, it's brought us an, a fresh awareness of that reality. Because it's not simply people with underlying health issues that are dying now, is it? It's people in the prime of their life. 33-year-old Russian fitness guru and social influencer, a 13-year-old boy in Missouri, a street preacher, a godly woman who leads Bible studies every week. So regardless of our age, our health, and regardless of our faith, we are susceptible to this invisible, potentially lethal airborne virus, aren't we? There's nothing we can do about it. It's one of the hardest things for us to grasp is that we're not in control of our own destiny. The same thing can happen to us as anybody else. We are susceptible 
to all of the same realities of life as everyone else. So it doesn't matter if you're righteous, you're unrighteous, you're saved or you're unsaved. And how we live our lives doesn't change as our life unfolds before us. Why? Because we're in the sovereign hands of God. Now, this may sound comforting, and from an eternal perspective, it is. We take great uh, comfort in Romans 8.28. All things work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. It's a great comfort, isn't it, to rest in the assurance that God is sovereign over all things. Every aspect of creation, even in this very second, he is sovereignly ruling over. Every moment of every day, he's in control. He's moving all of life and history to its final appointed end in him. Even during this time of pandemic, this hasn't happened without going through his sovereign hand. But the problem, the situation that one, verse 1 is driving at, is that if we were earnestly contemplating our lives, just take a moment and, and contemplate what's going on now. Under the sun, the situation is that we are unable to really understand if what we're experiencing is God's blessing or God's displeasure. Does that make sense? Both are before us. How do we know that this is God's pleasure or displeasure in the lives of, of, of fellow Christians? From experiencing, we may guess, you know, the course of our life, things, how God has worked in the past. We can guess how he may be working in our lives. But because we don't know the will of God, because we don't know the mind of God, he's absolutely sovereign, isn't he? we are unable to make any infallible conclusions about what's going on and why. So if you're able to take a snapshot of your life right at this very second, do you know if God is working in your life for his pleasure or his displeasure? The hardship and pain of, of getting into a car accident and finding out you'll never walk again. If in that slice, in that moment, it, you wonder, is this God's pleasure or displeasure? Because we don't necessarily see the end, and God may use that horrific accident to bring us to a deep and wonderful experience of oneness with him. That new job that you may be celebrating it seems to bring all kinds of wonderful blessings to your family, that, that you have some financial freedom and you can start planning some things. But how do you know that that position is not going to bring financial ruin and headache in the days and years to come? We just don't know. The best example of that is Job, isn't it? In the Old Testament. Imagine he, he's lost his family. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his health. And his friends are sitting there and they're saying, it's because of your sin. And, and, and he's saying, well, I just don't understand why. He, he doesn't know the outcome. Years later, he may be able to look back and say, well, God has blessed. But in that moment, he, was so, he, he didn't know if it was God's pleasure or God's displeasure upon him. In, in this moment of life, we don't know how God is working. What is the immediate cause of his sovereignty at work in our life? 
And that's the point of verse 1, God's sovereignty. If we were to take the time and objectively contemplate what's going on in our life here and now, we wouldn't be able to understand why God is doing certain things. But there's another aspect of this truth, that the same thing happens to us regardless of who we are, whether we're saved or unsaved. So not only are we able to know with any assurance uh, of what God's doing, not only are we able to assure that we can have a good life, even as a Christian, but verse 3 says very specifically, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. It's not the hearts of men minus those people who are my followers. It is the hearts of the children of men are full of evil. And so, do you see the depth of sin, the, the, the breadth of sin that's talked about here? It, this is a universal reality for all of us, saved or unsaved, both righteous and unrighteous. We share a heart that is riddled with sin. Every aspect of us is affected by sin. Every part of us, young or old, sin resides in our heart, and our heart is full of sin. We are sinful, fallen creatures. And because of sin, we will one day taste that consequence of physical death. Now, as Christians, we rest in the truth and the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. But by faith, our sins were buried with him, that we are now forgiven of our sins. And by faith, we hold tight to that promise that one day we will be in eternal glory with Christ forevermore. And yet, as many of us as call ourselves followers of Christ, how many of us still walk in disobedience and defiance of Jesus' rule in our life? and follow our own rule book, and not the Word of God. And, and this is where we need to go back to verse 1 again. If you don't get anything this morning, <laughs> this is important. We need to ask ourselves. We all know that all things work for good and for God's glory. But how do we know if it's not God's displeasure for our sin that is the immediate cause of what He is doing in our life? That out of his hatred for my flagrant disregard for his word, of my flagrant uh, love for sin, he, out of that he's, not, he's orchestrated the events of my life so that there will be a great fall. The answer is we don't. We don't know. And we need to think about that. We, we rest in that assurity, that, that ultimate promise that all things work to, for our good and his glory. But in this moment... Is God showing his pleasure or his displeasure in your life? Now, should we think that the, the preacher's words are all doom and gloom here in verses 4 through 6? There's hope. We have hope. To those whom God has joined to the living, to those whom he has shown mercy and grace, to those who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, to those who look to find meaning above this vain world and look to the one who is above, that is God, there is hope. 
And to emphasize that, he uses an ancient proverb, which sounds a little strange when we first think about it. A living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a really mangy stray dog. We have them in Toronto, but if you go to other parts of Africa, South America, or Asia, you will see a dog with scabies and, and all kinds of problems. And, and just like the old ancient days, dogs were considered scavengers. They were considered low on the totem pole. And you have this lion who's noble, a dangerous hunter. But the point of it is this. It's better to be lowly and alive than noble and dead. What he's saying is that as long as we're alive, as long as we're conscious, as long as we understand the reality of the world around us, that it's broken, it's fallen, we have hope. But as soon as we're dead, we have no future to look forward to. Even the fact that we were here will soon be forgotten. When we're dead, there will be no possibility of rewards, no possibility of enjoying the pleasures of life, no enjoy uh, the passions and desires that we have will perish, and we will have never have existed in the lives of the future generations. For those who come to God, God has joined to the living, there is hope. Now I want us to turn in our Bibles for a second. I want us to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We studied Ephesians this past year, but I, I really think it's important at this, time, at this moment. What does it mean to be joined to the living? Ephesians 2, verse 11 through 16. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the hand, by the flesh and the hands. And here it is. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been now brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made peace, uh, who has made us both one and has broken down uh, in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in ordinances. He has made us one. He has joined us to the living. All those who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior now have hope. So we can understand the reality and the brokenness of this fallen world. And as we're going to say in a minute, the preacher is going to say, you need to look above and enjoy the reality of, uh, that God blesses even in this terrible situation. So as Christians, our hope is that because we have been reconciled to Christ or to God through Christ, we will one day enjoy that eternal blessing of being in his presence, Right. This life is not all that there is. But here's the thing. No matter how much we try, no matter how much we want it, no matter how much faith we have, we can't control how life works out around us. We can't control our best life now. There's no guarantee of a bountiful or 
prosperous life for any of us under the sun. Our hope is sure. Faith gives us the ability to stare at the ugly reality of, of this world and all its brokenness. Then it gives us the ability to confidently walk through this life on into the next. As long as we have breath, we have hope. Not only for ourselves, but for our friends, our family, who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Shepherd yet. And so there is a window of opportunity as long as we are alive, as long as we understand the realities. There is great blessing, great potential for us <coughs> in the gospel to live for God in this broken world. And that leads now into verses 7 through 10. So the dilemma that we have in verses 1 through 6, just, just let me quickly really highlight it for you, is number one, that we're unable to know with any certainty the immediate cause of why God is doing certain things in our life. Number two is that we're all susceptible to the same reality and brokenness. It doesn't matter if we're believers or unbelievers. The same thing can happen to us. Number three, we suffer from the same madness of our heart, that we're sinners. And one day we will die. This is life under the sun. But we have faith in Christ. So how are we to live in this reality? Well, again, if the preacher had simply stopped with those, stopped with those first six verses, there wouldn't be much hope. He would say, you have hope, but what does it mean? Now he's going to tell us. He says, because we have hope, here are some things that we want you to, that you need to do. And he gives us four commandments. And commandments, they're imperatives, right? These are not options. These are not moral options for us. Because we have hope, we can face the realities of this fallen world and enjoy the blessings of God uh, that he provides. So again, in verses four, 7 through 10, we have these four commandments. Specifically, he says, you need to seek joy. In this broken world, seek joy. Verse 7, go eat bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you would do. Eat and drink with joy. Wake up! Stop complaining! <laughs> stop moping around! Life may not be what you would want it to be. It may not be your greatest desire, but God is guiding, providing, and leading. We are to eat and to drink with enjoyment and a merry heart because everything that we have is a gift from God. Now, guys, imagine coming home and your wife has made this wonderful meal. She's taken all day to prepare. You rush in, grab a plate, you plunk some meat down on the plate, and you go off and do something. You come back and you complain that it wasn't prime rib. That, that's basically what the preacher's saying. He says, you wanted prime rib, but God has provided for you in these basic necessities. Receive them with joy. You know, you think about it. When God created us, he created us with a need to eat. And, and coupled with that, he gave us taste buds. Taste buds, we can enjoy different flavors, salty, sweet, and all of the things in between. He's provided us with a wide variety of things to eat and drink for our enjoyment. Preacher says, enjoy it. Now, I don't know about you, 
We love cheese in our house. <laughs> Any point in time, you can come to our house and we probably have four or five different varieties of cheeses. At Christmas time, it probably is no stretch to say we can have 15 varieties of cheese in the fridge any one day. And we could have Irish cheddar, Stilton, blue, goat cheese, you know, anything. We just love cheese. Now, I'm kind of a plain guy. You give me a good old cheddar and I'm happy. I, I don't need to go into the cranberry and nuts and everything else, but my girls love it. But enjoy it. If that's what brings you, you know, the enjoyment of food, then great. But there's a difference between what we're talking about here and what the secular world says. Eat, drink, and be merry. The world says take everything to excess. Go to the all-you-can-eat buffet and gorge yourself so you can't walk again. You know, just take everything your heart desires and run. For the Christian... Eating and drinking with enjoyment means slowing down and not pigging out. Recognizing the one who has provided it and honoring them and placing value on it. Now, I don't know about you, but I've, I've struggled a couple times over, the, over my years. You know, I'll, I'll get a meal, I'll sit down by myself in the living room or something, and I'll just say a really quick 10-second thank you. But is it an expression of my heart, Lord, in the middle of this troublesome world? You have provided this meal. It's not my strength. In your provision, you have provided what I need. Thank you. And we, we do it three times a day, at least. And for many of us, it may be the only time we actually pray regularly in our house. But what is, is it part of, of your true extension of your heart and rejoicing and giving praise back to God? Or is it just kind of a quick uh, over the teeth and past the gums, look out tummy, here it comes. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for your provision. Verse 8, let your garments be white, and let not oil be lacking on your head. What he's saying is, is wear your joy on the outside. In the Old Testament, when people were mourning and distraught, what did they do? They put ashes and sackcloth on and they walked around and they wailed all the time. In the opposite way, then they wanted to show joy and thankfulness. They wore white and they poured oil on their head. So in modern terms today, we might want to say things like, well, keep yourself neat and clean. Wear clothing that's comfortable. You know, always have a smile on your face. But what's going on? He, he's, he's commanding us to let our garments always be white and, and oil on our head. He's telling us that we are to express that inward joy that is ours outwardly, reflected on the outside. How you prepare yourself to live for the day is reflective of your inside. Yes, the world may be unpredictable, harsh, and even unjust, but because we have un been united with the living, we are to enjoy everything that we have as a gift from God. And we're to show that joy on the outside. Now, I know that in our culture today, that we have kind of a re very relaxed uh, way of doing things at times. I can, go to, I can go to a store, outside of the GTA, obviously, but I can go to a store, and, and I can see a lady 
in uh, woolly pajamas. And I, and I think to myself, w- 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 what are you doing? And, and a lot of people don't think anything of it, but you know what? I get up in the morning, I'm thinking, how, how am I meeting the day? If you look at, you find me at, uh, at lunchtime and I haven't shaved my face, I'm in my woolly pajamas, I've got just a nightshirt on kind of strewn, you know that I haven't prepared myself, that there's, there's a lack of expression of my joy that's coming forth. I would just challenge you. How do you prepare for your day? How does that, that joy of your salvation express itself on the outside? If we are to be or sorry, if we have a joy for our salvation, what kind of a testimony is it that we go around as gloomy gusses all the time if we're always dumbed down? How can we say that we have this wonderful relationship with our Creator and there's no evident joy in how we live, how we dress, how we communicate with others? So there's an inward disposition of joy that must be expressed on the outside. And I think of Matthew 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The gospel, joy is inside you. Express it in how you live. Verse 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain, fleeting life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Enjoy your spouse. Now, to some very basic degree, this, this will apply to all of our relationships, and that we, we find ourselves in different relationships at work, at home, uh, with our neighbors, wherever it may be. But man, in a very specific note here, it says, enjoy your spouse. Well, how do you do that? When was the last time you showed her that you enjoyed her? Do you spend time with her? you speak with love and understanding? Do you honor her in any ways? you listen to her when she speaks? Do you guide her spiritually? In the same way, wives, though, how do you enjoy your husbands? You know, I, I might hear it point, you know, well, pastor, we've grown apart. We don't feel love. I don't, I don't know how I can enjoy him or her anymore. Now, earlier this week, I heard a, a wonderful little story, Elliot Gould and Barbara Streisand. You may not know both of them, but when they were really young in their early 20s, they were married. They divorced in the late 60s. And Barbara Streisand, while well, she was doing her memoirs, talked to Elliot, and, and they were trying to figure out, you know, how to express the breakup. And he asked, well, why did we grow apart? I don't remember. And her response was, we didn't grow apart, is that we didn't grow together. And that's what the preacher's talking about. How do you grow together to appreciate the joy of the spouse that God has given you? You may want to look around and say, well, someone is trimmer, prettier, younger, whatever it is, but this is the person that God has given to you. Proverbs 5.18, remember the wife of your youth. Remember what captivated 
you about her? When you saw her, what made your heart beat? What, what was it that, it that made you set your affections on her? We are to enjoy our spouse. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Work hard. Enjoy your work. Now, God has made each of us unique, different gifts, different talents, different skills. There are certain things that I naturally do differently and better than my two brothers and vice versa. And so often we will find ourselves working at a job that we don't love. Working at a place where we never thought we would be. And for sure, we don't want to be there the rest of our lives. We're not gifted for it. We're not trained for it. We just don't like the job, period. This may not be the job that you desire. It may not be the perfect job for your gifts. But it is the job that God has given you at this time. And through it, he provides for the necessities of life. He cares for you through this job. And think about it, even more, you know, we have this wonderful job, no matter what it may be. And in a time of recession, there are fewer jobs. In a time of, of a pandemic, who's really hiring? We shouldn't be grumbling or complaining about what we've been given to do with our hands, which is part of, of, the, of the original Edenic covenant, right? We were created to do work for and with God. The reality is, is, is that we are living in a fallen world, in a world that is broken. Nevertheless, God has given us work to be busy with, work that glorifies him as we give ourselves over to it in a recognition that in his sovereignty, he has given this as his blessing. So whatever it is, do it with joy. Work hard, because as you do it, you're receiving the work as coming from his hand. So here are the four things that we are commanded to pursue joy in. Eat and drink with joy. Wear your joy on the outside. Enjoy your spouse and enjoy your work. These are things that we are commanded to do. The real question is, are we content with these things in our life? Am I content with my job? Am I content with my spouse? Am I content with the finances that God has given me, with the house that I have, in, in the employment I have, wherever I may be living? Joy must be an expression of our contentment. Otherwise, we're no better than Israel grumbling in the desert when we have manna and quail and water coming from the rock. Now, you notice that the preacher doesn't promise that all of the problems and the injustices of life will never affect us. He only says that a, day, a life of daily dependence upon him, learning to be content in what he has given will make the vanity of this life worth living because it's focused on him. It doesn't say, forget the world around you, form it and create it how you want it to be. We don't pretend the world is anything other than it is, but we're able to look at the world and rather than and then, and, and get absorbed and become myopic and, and say this, oh, woe is me, look at all this brokenness, we're commanded to find joy in God's provision. 
1 Timothy 4.4 For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. We're not to go to excess, but God has given us everything that we need. He's provided for every possible need that we would have. If we have hope because we have been joined with the living, we of all people should be living joyfully in the world around us. No, there should be this overflow of joy when people see it. The question is, are we serious about joy? Or are we simply floundering through life in discontentment saying, oh, the world is broken and I don't like my life. I wish I could make it better. Hey, all I have to do is visualize and realize, and it's mine. Plant a little faith seed, and it will come. Now, in verses 11 and 12, the preacher takes basically what we've been looking at in the first six verses and applies it again. But I want you to notice why he does it. Because there's in a sense of urgency now. He says in verses 1 through 6, here's the problem that we all face. In, in verse 7 to 10, here is how you are to command or to seek joy. And now he comes back in verse 11 and 12 and he says, this is why, this is the urgency. Number 1, verse 11, life is unpredictable. Things don't always turn out as they should. The fastest runner doesn't win the race. The smartest people aren't always the richest. And I was thinking about that this morning. I was looking over my notes. I thought of swamp people. And I thought, they have more money than I do. <laughs> the strongest person doesn't win the battle. Now, probably the best example of this is a gentleman by the name of uh, <clears throat> um, Alexander Carlin. He was probably the best Greco-Roman wrestler of all time. Two-time world champion, three-time Olympic gold medal, nine-time world champion, 12-time European champion. So when he goes off to the Summer Olympics in Sydney in 2000, he's known as the Russian King Kong. He's been unbeaten in 13 years of international competition. And he's only given one point in six years of competing. His record is a staggering 886 wins to one loss. In that one loss, he only gave up one point. So when he goes to the Olympics and he meets this uh, American by the name of Gardner, he's beat him once already that year, and Gardner's never gone any higher than fifth place in the world. It, it, you can expect it, it's a foregone conclusion. And yet... It's gone down in sports legend as the biggest upset of all time. Gardner, he, he was in the clutches uh, of Alexander, and somehow he escapes, and in that brief moment, scores one point and wins gold. This man's only ever given up two points in 13 years. The strongest doesn't always win. You may be expecting your life to go one way, and it's not. Don't, don't wait for what you hope is yet to come. Enjoy life now. 
It's too unpredictable. Verse 12, not only is there this unpredictable nature in life, but there is an unpredictable aspect of our death too. None of us know when we're going to die. We all think that we're going to average out to 80 years approximately, right? And the truth of it, it, many of us will never get there. Death is like a snare to the bird or a net to the fish. Many of us, death will not be a slow deterioration of the body. It will be sudden, unexpected, and without mercy. It's all in the hands of God. No one can predict the time of our demise. At one moment, you may be driving down the highway tomorrow afternoon, and in a split second, you're hit by an 18-wheeler, and you're at the side of the road perishing. You've heard of those 911 calls and people are on the airlines and all of a sudden start, something starts to go wrong and they start calling their loved ones saying, I have five minutes, I have to say goodbye. Some of us may not get five minutes. Now, the preacher's not trying to be morbid. Now, we need to understand how unpredictable our lives are, how fragile they are. Well, we need to wake up from our stupor, from our comfortable uh, uh, lives that, that we're just uh, amassing wealth and things now. And we need to seek joy now because we don't know when that will come. We need to seek joy in the little blessings of God on a daily basis. God has allotted us, each and every one of us, a day when we will physically die. But none of us knows when that is. So life is unpredictable. Our death is unpredictable. Enjoy the blessings of God under the sun here and now because they come from the hand of God as blessings for you. One day, we're going to be going about our business like normal. We won't suspect a thing. And then suddenly, the net will fall on us. And the snare will tighten. And we'll be no more. Pursue joy now. Yes, this world is broken and fallen. But God cares for us each and every moment. He doesn't promise a perfect life. But he promises his covenantal love is upon us. Our task is to be faithful daily, to recognize his blessings, and to give praise back to him for all that he does. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanks that in this mess that is a broken world around us, you not only have saved us and brought us into the family of God, but Lord, you continue as in the desert, caring for your people. Even when we grumble and complain, your love is upon us. Help us, I pray, to grasp a vision that is wide and full of your blessings. Lord, Give us the ability to live for you in whatever circumstances that you have ordained for us. Here, now, in downtown Toronto, in our jobs, in our families, in our, in our, our spouses, whatever they may be, Lord, give us the ability to praise you and to rejoice, to receive them as coming from your loving hand.
We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.